The narrative continues um, from God's Word tonight. The Gospel of Matthew, the 27th chapter, Jake read to you the Jewish trial. I will read to you the Roman trial of Jesus Christ. Matthew 27, beginning at verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was great, greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your Word. We thank you that your word penetrates our hearts. We thank you that your word, empowered by your spirit, can do what we cannot do. It can change us. It can mold us. It can shape us. It transforms us. And Lord, as we would consider your cross tonight, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would use your word, empowered by your spirit, to convict us of sin, to convince us of righteousness tonight. Work powerfully in our midst, in our hearts, through your word, and we will be quick to give you all the praise, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I thought it'd be good to look at these two trials uh, this evening and uh, consider how these two trials, this Jewish trial, Uh, before the Sanhedrin in this Roman trial, before Pontius Pilate, what does that speak to us about what Jesus Christ accomplished for us on the cross? 
And I've entitled this message, The Righteous for the Unrighteous. The Righteous for the Unrighteous. And I, and I thought that we'd just look at two things tonight that I see that are very evident in this text. Two things that are evident in a lot of texts in the Gospels, but I think very clearly for us tonight, those two points are this. I want us to consider the, the radiant beauty of Christ's righteousness. The radiant beauty of Christ's righteousness. And secondly, I want us to consider the repulsive ugliness of man's sinfulness. The radiant beauty of Jesus' righteousness and the repulsive ugliness of man's sinfulness. Let us begin there with man's sinfulness. The, the first thing we read at the beginning of the count, Jake read for us, chapter 26, verse 59. Now the chief priests of the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. At the very beginning of this Jewish uh, trial, um, we, we see that, that, that the hand of the Sanhedrin and the elders is played. This is not a trial. This is not seeking justice. They are not seeking the truth. The, the, the scriptures are abundantly clear about how to conduct trials and hearings. Very clear on establishing the truth. Very clear on the whens and the whys and the hows. Very clear on how the defense has a chance to present its, its defense and establish witnesses of their own. And more than in a trial that the Sanhedrin and the elders are to judge, not to prosecute. And as we see here, that's not the case. They're prosecuting a case. They are seeking false witnesses with a single end of having Jesus killed. This verdict was, was established uh, a long time. Ago, we, we, we see this throughout the Gospels. All these uh, religious leaders, they had heard Jesus teach. They had seen his miracles. They have heard of his miracles. They had most recently either been a witness or have heard that Jesus has raised someone from the grave after he had been dead for four days. And immediately in that text, in John chapter 11, the word of God says, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Hatred, disdain, rage. The Jewish leaders loathed Jesus and they wanted him dead. I would assume, and I'm going to go out on a limb, these were well-respected men. They were generally peaceful men. They, they were men who, if we were kind of to be in their company, we would enjoy speaking and interacting uh, with uh, these men, yet they are filled with such hostility and hatred towards Jesus, they only want one thing. They, they will only settle for one thing. He must be executed. He must be murdered. Now, I don't like to go there. I can somehow dwell in execution. I really can't dwell in murdering. 
And uh, I, I have been challenged, as I know some of you here have been challenged by a book, and this book has been helpful even as I've considered preparing for the season. John MacArthur writes a book called The Murder of Jesus. And, and that's, maybe it's, it's just provocative, but the more I look at this count, the more I consider what he writes, the more I, 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 I marinate myself in this text, in many ways he's right. This is no trial. This is no fair hearing of evidence and seeking truth. This is malicious, it's cold, it's vindictive, and it's deceitful. There's nothing godly going on here. There's nothing God-honoring that's happening in this trial. It's dark, and it's demonic from the outset, and, and, it, and it worsens. Jake read about Caiaphas, the high priest. They, they bring false witnesses, and even the false witnesses couldn't agree with one another. And Caiaphas finally comes to the, to, the, to the point where, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And, and Jesus responds, you have said so, but I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And that just ignites a powder keg. The high priest rips his, his garments. What, what further need do we have of witnesses? You've all heard what he has said. What is your verdict? He, he, he deserves death. A trial wrongly put together late at night. Everything they're doing is illegal. It's just a, a, a gathering of some of the religious leaders uh, 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 that, that are there, hastily put together this. And, and the word of God says they render the verdict, he deserves death. And, and the scriptures say they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, mocking him. My put, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? In other accounts, they said that they put some almost kind of bag or some kind of veil over his head and just began to strike him in the face and mockingly asked him, who is it that struck you if you're the Christ? And I just stop and I pause for a moment. What would bring these men to the place where you spit in a man's face and you strike him with blows? What has this man done to deserve such hostility and such hatred from these people. They mangle Jesus' face. They bruise his face. He's full of blood. The word of God says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with grief. Jesus is unjustly tried and beaten by evil men. This is the essence of the first trial. This is the, 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 the verdict, if you will, that was determined uh, from the first, first trial. His own people, the Jewish people, the, the chosen people, the Messiah has come, and this is the verdict that they have, that they have rendered. I'm mindful of John's words in the first chapter. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. 
And surely in this account, his people did not receive him. And that brings us to Pilate and Jesus in the second trial. We're still just considering this this repulsive ugliness of man's sinfulness. And the first word out of Pilate's in my reading this evening, uh, Pilate confronts him, so are you the king of the Jews? He seems to cut right to the place. Now, there's a lot going on in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and you need to kind of line them up, and I just don't have time to kind of fully uh, unpack all that. But where, where did this, this uh, accusation of, are you the king of the Jews? Well, we would probably say in Luke's Gospel, the 23rd chapter, the second verse, they said this to Pilate, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is a king. Again, trumped up charges, nothing that was founded, nothing that was brought with evidence, nothing that was, was able to be defended. Just these, they gathered in the morning at the beginning of, of chapter 27. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people, they counseled together what? To give some plan. Blasphemy is not going to put him on a cross. Pilate's not going to buy into some religious theological debate you guys are having. We need charges, and these are the charges that they come up with, concocted by the chief priests, and, and Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And at the end of this portion of Scripture and throughout the Scriptures, Pilate is consistent. I find no fault in this man. Again and again, as the accusations come, Pilate's assessments, I find no fault in this man. Then let him go. Then uphold justice. Then do your job. But he doesn't. He could have at any time just released Jesus, even scourged him and released him and and dispersed the crowd. He had the resources. He had the ability. He doesn't. And he comes with this plan that, yes, it's it's, it's at the feast time, and this is a time where I can show benevolence and and mercy to my my people, and, 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 and I will release to them this prisoner. And I don't know all that's going on in Pilate's mind, but at some level, because of envy, they brought Jesus to us. And they had a notorious person. Oh, he was notorious. There were few murderers. There were few insurrectionists that brought it to the level that Barabbas seemed to bring it. But I will give them Barabbas. And I don't know if it was in Pilate's mind. Is it the Jews hate Barabbas? The Romans hate Barabbas? The, the religious leaders hate Barabbas? They would never take Barabbas over Jesus. Maybe that's what's going in Pilate's mind. The envy. But he gives them Barabbas, and he asks the people the question, do you want me to release to you Barabbas, a murderer, an insurrectionist, a murderer of murderers? Or do you want me to release to you Jesus, who is the Christ? And I know that they were welled up by the religious leaders. But the sinless Savior of the world is standing before them. And, and, a, and a violent murderer is standing before them. And all of them asked for Barabbas. That's evil. That is utter blindness. That, that is utter deadness. What do you want me to do with Jesus who is the Christ? I just can't fathom the word crucify him. Why? What has he done? Crucify. Yelled even louder, 
crucify him. Didn't answer the question. Just yelled even louder. Um, it's amazing to consider um, the offer that was presented to them. And we really begin to see the hearts of the people in this matter calling for Jesus to be crucified. It goes on. It spirals down. Pilate just kind of washes his hands of it. He says, I'm, I'm innocent. He takes water in a basin and he, and he washes his hands. I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself. Pilate tries to maybe ease his, conference, his, 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 his conscience, maybe to, maybe to ease the, 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 the guilt of, of, of what he has done, seeing that this is gone in a way he really didn't maybe necessarily desire for it to go, but he's fully culpable. He's fully responsible for what he has done. I'm just washing, this water is going to wash my hands clean of this matter. And we know no water can wash any conscience clean of any, any matter. What can wash away Pilate's sin? Nothing but the blood of this man. And Pilate stood and he goes through some ritual, empty, meaningless act of washing his hand and handing Jesus, knowing, handing Jesus over to be crucified. And probably the most troubling words, I don't know if you heard them when I read them, but the most troubling words in this text for me, and I wish I had more time to just kind of linger, without prompting, without necessarily having to say anything, the word of God says, and all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. They didn't have to respond, but the word of God says all of them respond in unison. His blood, that man's blood, Jesus' blood, that be on me and all my kids standing here with me. Put, put that one on my tab. Cause me to be accountable. Wow. What has Jesus ever done to you? What, is, what has Jesus ever done for you to come to the place out of the overflow of the heart? The mouth truly speaks. You put this man's blood on my account. I couldn't imagine saying that to anybody. And these normally common folk felt the need to say, this man's blood be on my, be on me and my children. Wow. Darkness, blindness. They're saying, we, we, we hate God and we want nothing to do with his son. That's what the heart is saying. Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, fully God and fully man, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, the good shepherd, the light of the world, the resurrection and the life, the word became flesh. His blood be on me. And my children, the heart is evil. The heart is wicked. And we are seeing just how evil and just how lost and just how desperate the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it, Jeremiah says to us. 
There are none righteous. No, not one. No one seeks God and, and no one fears God. We are desperately, every human being is desperately in need of the grace of God and the mercy of God and the kindness of God and the forgiveness of God that is offered to us in Jesus. And here he stands. His blood be on me. Wow. I don't think we just appreciate enough just how evil our hearts can be. I hope it's not something that's burdensome and condemning. There is no condemnation in Jesus, but it does our hearts good to be reminded of just how desperately we stand in grace. This text shows us the repulsive ugliness of our sinfulness, but let me just for a few moments, just a few moments this evening remind us of just the beauty of Christ's righteousness, and it is kind of all over this text. Um, in, in, in all these encounters in this trial, um, uh, it, it, we, we just see Jesus' is, is perfect innocence and in, in his purity at every point in this account. Uh, when I speak of his righteousness, I can't get into all of it tonight, but this is just his perfect obedience to the Father's will, his perfect love for the Father and all he does, his perfect expression of love uh, to, to those around him, his, his, his faithful commitment to the, to the will uh, of God, and we, we see it in the plan of God we see throughout this account. Before the Jewish court, they, they, they find no guilt. They, they can't bring one charge um, uh, against Jesus. Um, when, when he's questioned by, by Pilate, he, he speaks the truth. He has to, when, when asked directly questions, Jesus does answer the questions, and he answers them truthfully. While it provokes response in the people, Jesus is completely truthful in all that he says to Pilate. Same with Caiaphas. He, he answers in absolute, perfect truth. Again and again, he's, he's silent before his accusers because really everything they're doing and everything they're saying is, is unjust and it's untrue. And Jesus doesn't have to offer a response to everything that they're saying to him. And we just see in Jesus just a perfect, if you will, word meekness just came to my mind. This inner strength, this inner knowing of God and known of God and the will of God and, and being confident in that and not a, 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 a need to where he feels that he has to respond and, and to defend it takes more strength sometimes to be quiet than it does to, to speak. It probably takes more strength more often to be quiet than to speak. The Word of God says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like sheep before their shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And that is beautiful to me, and I hope it's beautiful to you. I mean, think about our lives. The first comment, the first wrong perception, the first thing that somebody says to us that we don't believe is, is fully true, the first critical word, the first injustice that is done to us, we feel like we've got to lash back and we've got to defend and we've got to maintain our honor and not so with Jesus, he committed no sin, First Peter tells us. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him 
who judges justly. Pilate's wife, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him in a dream today. Direct quote, not my words, they were her words. Have nothing to do with this righteous man. Pilate again and again, I find no guilt in him, none. If we look at these accounts and we are honest, Jesus throughout these accounts is spotless. He is blameless. He is innocent. He is without fault. He is pure. He is righteous at every turn, at every word, and at withholding of every word. On the cross, Jesus will say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's perfectly conformed to the will of his Father. And as we started this service this evening, it was, this is the will of his Father. All this sin and all this awful, ugly response to Jesus, God not responsible for them. They are fully responsible, but God is utterly sovereign and all of his good purpose and plans are being accomplished. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, and 4, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, doing with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. I can't get my mind fully around that. These men and these people are completely responsible for every word and every utterance and every evil deed, yet God is 100% sovereign in control of everything that is taking place in this account. And Jesus is completely and utterly and 100% walking in obedience to the will of God, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. It was the Father's predetermined plan to crush his son. Jesus came to die. Not, not by a raging, hysterical mob stoning him in, in some far-off place in Jerusalem. That could have happened. That is what happened to Stephen. Jason just shared with us just a few weeks ago the stoning of Stephen. That mob could have just gone to mob town. But it was said, and Jesus said a number of times, he wouldn't be crushed by stones in some place, but he would be lifted up. He would be crucified. He would be cursed and hang on a tree, as Rob reminded us on Sunday, it's Passover, again reminded on Sunday, uh, 250,000 lambs were slaughtered at Passover, 250 animal sacrifices took place, uh, 250 million, uh, 250,000, I'm sorry, uh, two and a half million people, 250,000 lambs were slaughtered. Blood is just pouring through the streets of Jerusalem. You just can't get near Jerusalem without just hearing animals being uh, slaughtered. 250,000 lambs and none can atone for sin. None can make us right with God. The word of God says, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. These lambs only symbolize a, a more perfect sacrifice that God himself would provide. And we see that in Jesus. We see that in this trial. We see it in his entire life. He lived a life of perfect obedience. He lived a life of perfect righteousness. Uh, 
All the lambs that would come, none were perfect, none were blameless, none were without fault. A priest may say, oh, this is a perfect lamb, you can use him for sacrifice, but none of them were. We're all fallen, we all feel the effects of the curse. Jesus Christ was that perfect lamb for sacrifice. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There was never a spotless, blameless animal and those animals could never atone for sin. And here comes Jesus and by his perfect righteous life, he could provide a sacrifice that could truly atone for sin. The great question before us tonight and the great question before us always is this. How can a righteous, holy God forgive sinners? How can a righteous, holy God have mercy on sinners? And we see it just displayed in this trial as Jesus will fully uh, accomplish it on the cross. There's only two things. Forgiveness of sins. Jesus came and was that perfect sacrifice. He fulfilled that perfect righteousness. He was truly spotless and blameless. And he, as the son of God, fully God and fully human, is the only one that could bear our sins on the cross and atone for our sins. We need forgiveness. We cannot be reconciled to God apart from forgiveness. And forgiveness is found through faith in Jesus Christ. But oftentimes, and we speak of it, and we sing of it, but so clear here, for forgiveness is, 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 is part, the, the other part is we lack righteousness. God demands of us all a perfect life, and none of us, as we would just confess, come even close. So to be forgiven of our sins, yes, but, but, but we lack a perfect righteousness. And we just see in this trial and we see in his last days and we see as he journeys to the cross and we see as he's on the cross, Jesus fulfills a perfect life of righteousness. And the Bible tells us that there is a righteousness that come that's apart from the law. And the law testifies to it and the prophets testify to it. But there's a righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, in believing in him. Romans 3, 21 and 23. By one man's obedience, the many may be made righteous. We just don't think we stand, we cannot be experience salvation without Christ's perfect life of righteousness credited to us. That, that God, as, as, as he would impute Christ's righteousness to us, he would regard Jesus' righteousness as belonging to us. So we don't live the life that God demands of us, but Jesus Christ did lead that perfect righteous life. And God is able to justify sinners by forgiving them of their sin, believing on Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and the, and, and the appeasement of wrath, and by providing a righteousness, it's an alien righteousness, it's not our righteousness, it's Christ's. And by believing in him, sins are forgiven, a righteousness provided, and God would look upon us and see us as ones that had lived the perfect life that Christ lived. That's salvation. 
And we see this beautiful outworking of that as we consider these trials. Jesus walking through and doing what he alone could do. Uh, uh, achieving for us what only he could achieve. And the word of God just makes it clear. We're, 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 we're awful sinners in need of grace, in need of forgiveness. And, and we lack the very thing that God asks for us and he provides it for us in Jesus. And the word of God calls us tonight to simply believe it. And it brings us to the cross and that's where we see it. He gets to the final part and the word is it is finished. It's accomplished. We can't do it. He, he has. And the word is to simply believe. We find forgiveness in Jesus at the cross. And we find that provision of righteousness, which we lack at the cross. And none of us have deserved it. That's the point. And he simply beckons us to come and to believe. As we consider his trial, we, we, we get an, an insight and understanding into what he has accomplished for us at the cross. Might he grant us faith tonight to believe it, and more than that, to cherish it, to delight it, to abound in it that it might overflow, and we might share it with those around us. Let's bow for a word of prayer together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word this night. We thank you for just a good reminder of what Christ has done on our behalf. We thank you for the mercy and the kindness and the grace that you have shown us in Jesus. And we thank you and we feel the sense that we lack it. We have nothing to give. We feel that. We feel the awfulness of our sin. And Lord, forgive us for when we take that and just go so many other places. Lord, help us tonight to bring it to the cross. And Lord, give us eyes to see and give us faith to believe that you're good and that you're working for our good. For the believer tonight, Lord, might you just grant encouragement. Uh, the work is finished. Maybe we're weary and we're tired. We just need to be reminded the work is finished. It's done. And for one here, maybe tonight, Lord, might we consider the salvation has been made available to us. How can you call this Friday good when Jesus died on a cross? Because it's the only way salvation could be purchased. Uh, sin, uh, born, a penalty, paid, wrath appeased, and righteousness provided. Give us the faith to believe it tonight, Lord, and we will give you thanks, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.